Be like me. Follow me. Imitate me. Be like me. <laughs> what do you think of that? Sounds like we're starting some weird cult, doesn't it? I don't know that there's anyone in the room, including me, that would be comfortable sincerely standing on the stage and saying that. But it is interesting how many times Paul tells the believers, follow me, imitate me, be like me. Our vision statement is to come together, to know Jesus, become more like him, and to help others do the same. And I would suggest the absolutely best way to help others do the same is to model for them what it looks like to follow Jesus. And that's what we want to talk about today. If you have a Bible, turn with us to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's our last week in 2 Thessalonians. You've put together the two letters which came fairly close to one another. They've been letters full of promises, full of hope. So it's kind of curious the way this letter ends. Because there's a problem in Thessalonica. And it ends with Paul trying to address the situation. We pick it up in verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. So this is actually very strong language. It's military language. I command you. This actually goes back to verse 4. When he says, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Five times in this section, military language, command, obey, command, obey. Paul's quite clear this isn't his opinion. It's quite clear that Paul's not just getting all legalistic on us. But he identifies in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is with the authority of Jesus. This is what Jesus commands of us. That you keep away from. It's a Greek word that means basically to withdraw from, to create some space between, to, to pull back the relationship from every brother who leads an unruly life. So every Christian who's living an unruly life could be translated undisciplined life. So again, that's military language and it refers specifically to a soldier who's out of step. A soldier that's just not willing to do what he or she is told. So if we change the imagery, since it's uh, March Madness season, let's imagine a basketball team. 
and you're in the final game, you're behind by one point, there's 10 seconds left, and you have the ball, and the coach is diagramming the one play that hopefully leads to a good shot to win the game. But as soon as the ball is thrown in bounds, there's one teammate that won't do what he's told and does his own thing. As a result, it ruins the play and you lose the game. That's basically the Greek word when it's talking about unruly or undisciplined life. Now, right now, this is pretty vague. It came up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, admonish the unruly, same word. Whatever it was, Paul tried to address it, and they wouldn't listen. So now in the second letter, he's trying to address it with stronger language. He says, this is not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Last week, Jeff taught us that tradition here doesn't mean what we think of as tradition. It carries the idea of a teaching that's being passed on and a teaching that's authoritative. It's the teaching of Jesus that Paul has passed on to them, but they're unwilling to listen to it. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So you yourselves know, meaning they experienced that they're eyewitnesses to how Paul lived among them seeking to be an example, a pattern for them to follow. So this would tell us that this issue was already a problem in Thessalonica. It's already in the water. It's already in the DNA. He knew that before he even arrived, which led to his decision to work night and day in order to pay his own way. What Paul's talking about is the fact that religion has always been big business. And in a first century Roman world, there were religious leaders who would come to town and the expectation was they would be pampered, they would be put up to stay somewhere, all their food would be provided, everyone else would pay their bills and in exchange, they would teach them something about God. And because it was believed that you essentially had to go through them to get to God, it gave them a lot of leverage. But Paul made a strategic decision in order to not put unnecessary obstacles between him and the gospel he decided that he would work in order to pay his own way. So that's what he's saying. I didn't take anyone else's food. I didn't ask for money. We worked really hard. We paid our own way, seeking to be a model of responsible living. He uses the word in verse 7, we didn't live unruly or undisciplined among you. 
So with labor and hardship, those two words mean basically toil and fatigue. We worked night and day. So we know Paul was a tent maker, so that's likely what he was doing. So in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, basically it looked like this. The people would work through the morning into the early afternoon. Then typically in the heat of the day, they would take a rest period, kind of like a siesta in Spain. And they would take several hours off until it cooled down. And then they would uh, go back to work and typically work until the sun sun went down. It's believed that when Paul went into these cities to do ministry, he did ministry during the siesta time, ministry during the rest time. That's when people were available. That's when he could do ministry. So basically it's saying that from sun up to sun down, he was busy working to pay his own way and also doing ministry among them in order not to be a burden. Verse nine, not because we do not have the right to this, meaning support or pay, but in order to offer ourselves as a model, as a pattern, this is how you should be living, so that you would follow our example. So the conversation is a little bit delicate because in other letters, such as 1 Timothy 5, such as 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about if you're called to preach the gospel, you should expect to be paid for preaching the gospel. In other words, it's a call, it's a job like anybody else's job, and there should be a reasonable expectation for that. But Paul's going into this area where there are no believers. There is no church. And in order to not create unnecessary barriers, no one could say to Paul, you're just in this for the money. He chose to work hard, pay his own bills, pay his own way uh, in order to bring the gospel to the Thessalonians. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. The grammar here is we used to say this over and over and over again. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So this discussion, was this like a Jewish proverb that Paul just repeated? Or was this original with Paul? There's no real way to determine that. But what we know for sure is when he was there with them, he had to say to them over and over again, no work, no food. So by now we're starting to put this together and we understand there was something in the water, something in the DNA at Thessalonica that already was a problem. When these people became believers, some of them were still engaged in that problem and had not yet understood what it looks like to live a responsible life that rightly represents 
Jesus. So that's what Paul is talking about. It's important to notice, he says, those who are not willing to work. The Bible actually has a very strong ethic for taking care of the poor and for looking out to care for the disadvantaged. So we should be about that as a church. But that's different than what he's talking about here. He's talking about people who are perfectly capable of working but choose not to. They just expect everyone else to pay their bills for them. We would call it, they just mooch off everybody else. And that's not who we are as the people of God. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined, same word, unruly, undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. That's actually a little bit of a play on words. It's you're busy being busybodies. So at this point, I think we can start to put the pieces together. There was something that was happening, happening in Thessalonica and probably in most of these cities. It was already there when Paul went there. He knew about it and he determined he wanted to model for them a better way to live. So what is he talking about? I think what he's talking about is the Greeks had a very low view of manual labor. They just believed this was beneath them. This was the kind of work that slaves do. They had what was called the marketplace. It's not exactly what we think of as a marketplace. It was essentially a gathering place. It was a place where things were bought, where things were sold, but it was also a place where people gathered. They gathered to talk politics, they gathered to talk philosophy, they gathered to talk about all kinds of things, but basically they also poked their nose into everybody else's business. They were just troublemakers, they were a nuisance. And it was a problem in all these uh, cities here. So when we read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17 describes when Paul came to Thessalonica. And we're told that it wasn't long until the religious Jews got angry and they wanted Paul out. So we're specifically told they went to the marketplace and there they found worthless fellows to stir up trouble and to chase them out of town. So it's likely that's what Paul's talking about. It's a place where people go to be lazy, people go to be idle, people go to be a nuisance, a place where people go to be busybodies, stirring up trouble, poking their nose into everyone else's business, and then they mooch on everyone else, expecting everyone else to pay their bills. So Paul is saying that's not what we're about as the people of God. It's all built on this concept of shalom, this concept of flourishing. Think of it in the context of a tribe 
with the idea that for a tribe to survive, everyone has to make their contribution. And if people drain the tribe instead of contribute to the tribe, then they're draining the shalom. So there was an expectation, everyone comes together to do their part. So Paul's saying that's what we tried to model for you. That's what we tried to be an example of for you, but there's some of you that just won't listen. So basically he told them when he was there, it's vaguely addressed in the first letter, they're still not listening, so it's strongly addressed at the end of this letter. So in verse 12, he's gonna talk directly to the busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort, very strong, in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Stop being idle, stop being lazy, stop being busybodies, stop poking your nose in everybody else's business, get a job, work hard, quiet down, and contribute to the tribe. That's essentially what Paul is saying. Verse 13, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing Good. At some point, it starts to feel like, what's the point? You try to do the right thing. You try to do good, and it feels like other people take advantage of you. And at some point, it's like, what's the point? So maybe you're an employee, and you try to be a really good employee. You show up on time. You work really hard. But the other guy gets the promotion because of politics and some other things, and you start to think, what's the point? What's the point? Where did that get me? Or maybe you're an employer, and you work really hard to be generous. You work really hard to be fair. You work really hard to create an environment that's good for the employees, but all they do is complain. And all they do is take advantage of you, and you start to think, what's the point? I try to do the right thing, and where does it get me? And since it's April, let's add one more. This is the month we pay our taxes. So we work really hard, and we pay our taxes. But then the government turns around and wastes so much money in so many ridiculous ways, you start to think, what's the point? What's the point of doing that? What Paul is saying is don't get weary in doing good. What should represent us as the church, as the people of God, is we do the right thing simply because it is the right thing. There's a lot of things I can't control or change, but our responsibility is to model for the community. This is what it looks like to do the right thing. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person 
and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So what is the church's responsibility to those who continue to live irresponsible, unruly lives? The answer is to create separation. This is where it started in verse six, to pull back, to create a level of separation that clearly communicates that's not okay. It's not okay to live that way. It's not okay to work the system. It's not okay to take advantage of other people. It's not okay. So at some point, just like with your family, sometimes you have to make difficult decisions not to enable family members that are living irresponsible lives. It's the same thing as a church family. You have to figure out how to respond to those that are not living as we're called to live. Now, this is not talking about discipline. This is not talking about shunning someone. The language isn't that. As a matter of fact, it's clear. Don't treat them like an enemy. Treat them like family. But sometimes, even within your family, you have to make hard decisions in order to send a message that says that behavior's not okay. The idea of shame is very different in a 21st century America than it was in an ancient honor-shame culture. Over the last five years, there's been a lot of conversation about shame, and it's been very good and very helpful for a lot of people. But what we're talking about with 21st century American shame is not the same as an ancient culture that was based on an honor-shame society. Basically, again, think of a tribe. The idea was that we're gonna survive or not survive as a community, and everybody has to do their part. And those that contribute and do their part, there's honor in that. But for those who want to drain the shalom, those who want to take advantage of people, for those who want to mooch off the system, you're actually making it more difficult for everyone. So you end up with a negative public rating. And that's shame. So Paul's saying there has to be some way to communicate. We're not okay with that. That's not who we are as the people of God. So starting in verse 16 to verse 18, Paul completely shifts gears, and it's the close to the letter. So before we shift to that, I want to talk for just a few minutes about the relevance of this passage to our lives today. So again, if you build this all on a biblical concept of shalom, that we are called as the people of God 
to create a context of mutual flourishing, a place where everyone can flourish together. What's required for that is everyone doing their part to make their contribution to that. So with that as a foundation, are you a giver or a taker? What is your orientation in life? Are you a giver or are you a taker? Are you more likely to serve others or to use others? Are you more interested in making your contribution to shalom as an honorable thing? Or are you more likely to work the system in order to benefit you? Remember in the Proverbs, wickedness is disadvantaging the community in order to advantage myself. Are you a giver or are you a taker? As the people of God, we should be determined to do the right thing. It's good to remind ourselves that just because the government says something is okay doesn't make it morally right before God. God has called us to be givers, to be contributors, to come together to do our part in creating flourishing. Our employers should be the best employers in town, should be generous, should be caring, should seek to create the best environment you can for the people. Our employees should be the best employees in town. Our neighbors should be the best neighbors in town. The goal would be that the people in our community might say, I don't really get what these Bereans are all about, but I do know that our community is better because they are here. But I wanna push this another step farther. I've been thinking this week, what would be the 21st century American equivalency of the ancient marketplace? Where is it for us that people go to linger? People go to be idle. People go to be lazy. People go to poke their nose in everyone else's business and be busybodies. Where is it people go to waste time instead of making their contribution? And I think my answer is the digital marketplace. That's where it is for us today. 
By digital marketplace, I mean television, I mean computer, I mean pads, I mean phones, anything with a screen. I think that's where it is for us. So here's some things to think about. According to the latest research, the average American touches his or her phone 2,617 times per day. Per day. 2,617 times per day. To the tune of the average American spends 11 hours and six minutes per day in the digital marketplace. I wonder how many of those people over the years have been asked to help with something. And the answer is, I'm too busy. I'm too busy loitering in the digital marketplace. All this is not without consequence. Part of the reality of the world has been that part of life is boredom. Nobody really likes boredom, but boredom is important. It actually creates an environment where your brain can rest, where it can recover, where it can refresh. Boredom is also the catalyst for creativity. Tolstoy said, boredom is the desire for a desire. And out of that comes creativity. Current research shows that creativity is a three times greater predictor of student accomplishments than IQ. Creativity is three times a greater predictor of student accomplishments than IQ. There have been researching, researchers tracking creativity scores since the 1950s. And what they have found is in the 1990s, the creativity score for Americans plummeted and has never recovered. Hmm. I wonder what happened in the 90s. The brain has two basic modes. The focus mode, which is just what you think of when I'm focused on something, which includes the 11 hours and six minutes per day at the digital marketplace. But it also has an unfocused mode. The unfocused mode is essentially boredom. But why boredom matters is because that's where the brain rests. That's where the brain recovers. 
That's where the brain is restored in order to be ready to focus again. But because we today as a culture have such an aversion to boredom, we fill it up with the digital marketplace. One researcher equated it to going to the gym and you do reps, then you rest. You do reps, then you rest. You do reps, then you rest. But what's happened is there is no rest. It's endless reps. And the result is a brain that is fatigued to its max. According to researchers, the consequence of a fatigued brain is more impatience, we're more demanding, we're more distracted, we're more despairing, we're more discontent with life, and we're more depressed. According to one professor of psychiatry at Brown University, he would say that this brain fatigue is the major reason for the skyrocketing numbers of mental illness. It seems to me that there's no way we're gonna live our lives as hope-filled people if we continue to linger at the digital marketplace. What if we were to make some changes? What if we were at least to spend some of that time doing something that contributes more to the shalom of the community? What about some time spent pouring into the life of a child? What about time spent serving one another? What about time spent loving our neighbor? What about time spent outside? What about time spent chasing our hobbies or an adventure? What about time spent grabbing a cup of coffee with a friend? What about thinking about how to be more productive with this one life I've been given? Instead of spending so much time lingering in the digital marketplace. What would that look like to live in a healthier way? Something to think about. Starting in verse 16, Paul shifts to the close of the letter. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's very interesting that Paul's writing a letter to Christians who are being persecuted. And the persecution is only gonna get worse. Yet what he says is the Lord of peace, Jesus, can give you peace in every circumstance. Why does he say that? It's based on everything he's taught us in first and second Thessalonians. It's based on the truth and the promises that give us hope. It's because we've been reminded that God is sovereign. No matter how crazy it seems, no matter how chaotic and out of control it seems, God is sovereign. God is God. God's got this. Everything's gonna be okay. It's a reminder that no matter what we go through, Jesus walks with us through that. And one day, Jesus is coming back. How exactly all those details will play out, I'm not sure. But I am absolutely sure he's coming back. And when he does, he will gather his people to him and deliver them to a paradise, a future that is more glorious than you could even begin to imagine this morning. And until that moment, he's promised to walk with you through whatever you're facing every step of the way. So there's every reason to experience peace. Peace in every circumstance. We mentioned a couple weeks ago there was a problem with some pseudo letters floating around. It was always a problem. So Paul says at the end of the letter, he signed his name to it. Signed Paul. This is from me. This is from Jesus. This is true. This is what you need to know. To live your life as a hope-filled person. Our Father, we're thankful for the truth. In the midst of a crazy and confused culture, God, may we be a light in the darkness. May we model for those around us what it looks like to do the right thing. Lord, may we live our lives in such a way that people around us will see the light of Jesus in us. Lord, may we truly be a hope-filled people. In Jesus' name, amen.